The grace and peace of the Lord be with you. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come to read your word and to hear a mere man speak about things that he does not understand, will you pour out your Holy Spirit instead, that through the mystery of your Holy Spirit and through the words of Jesus Christ, we may come to a deeper understanding and a courage to confront and to forgive each other. So may the words of my mouth and meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are living in very difficult times, and I think one of the, one of the characteristics that we actually need is courage. And in fact, I would like to quote to you a verse uh, that is taken from... I need help to move to the next slide. It's not moving. I'm taking a verse that was given to Joshua and also to Moses when they were coming into the kingdom, which is basically to be strong and courageous. I'm not sure whether you're able to see it up front there, but if you can, those who are online, will you join me and say this verse, not just for the sake of saying it, but saying it to your own heart, to your own self, because these are difficult times that we live in and we need courage. So shall we read this together to our own hearts? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. This is taken from Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. I've always seen it as a comfort that God himself says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this is a very odd way for me to start uh, this sermon given that the text is about uh, confrontation as well as dealing with sin and forgiveness. But I think that if we really look into the situation of looking into the kingdom of God and conquering the kingdom, we are dealing not really with mortal enemies, but with sin within our own hearts and within the hearts of those whom we love. And Jesus in particular is dealing with sin in the church. Confronting sin in the church. I mean, how can the church speak into a community if it does not itself deal with issues within its own confines? We always say, sort out your own you know, backyard before you comment about your neighbour. And it is often that we find that the church can go all self-righteous and pious outside, and then people say, but look at what has happened in your church. And all denominations have had their problems. The, the, uh, the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, the Methodist Church, all these big, large organizations that have been confronted with greed, with corruption, with fraud, with sexual misconduct, and a whole host of power and control issues. We had the Me Too movement, and we've also had the Church Too movement. And so in a way, I'd like to go back to what Jesus said when he was talking to his disciples about dealing with sin within the church. 
And if you have your Bibles with you, please keep them open because it's important to understand the context in which Jesus is coming from. Chapter 18 begins with Jesus being asked this question by his disciples, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then he brings a child and he says to these children, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, he says, take again this lowly position of a child. And so within these children then comes the next point in his parable about causing these children to stumble, followed by the parable of the wandering sheep. In a way, saying that these people who are called into the kingdom of God are like little children who quite easily get lost. And so, amongst these people, he says, if you have these children who are lost, like wandering sheep, seek them out, bring them back. This, in a way, is the battle of the kingdom. The courage to seek out those who are lost, not just who are outside, but within the kingdom itself, and to bring them back. To bring them back into the fold of the church. And so we come to this point that when we're dealing with sin in the church, we understand that we're dealing with other people. Let me quote the words of uh, Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou is a poet, a playwright, uh, a human rights activist. Uh, she has inspired Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X and most recently, Oprah Winfrey and Barack Obama. She has dealt with racism and she has also been a victim of racism. So this is what Maya Angelou had to say about courage. She says, I am convinced that courage is the most important of all virtues because without courage, you cannot practice any other virtue consistently. You can be kind for a while, you can be generous for a while, you can be just for a while, or merciful for a while. But it is only with courage that you can be persistently and insistently kind and generous and fair. We need the courage to create ourselves daily, to be bodacious enough to create ourselves daily. One isn't born with courage. This is continuing on from what she said. One isn't born with courage. One develops it. And you develop it by doing small, courageous things. In the same way that one wouldn't set out to pick up a 100-pound bag of rice, if that was one's aim, the person would be advised to pick up a 5-pound bag, then a 10-pound, and then a 20-pound, and so forth, until one builds up enough muscle to be able to lift up. 100 pounds. And that's the same with courage. You develop courage by doing courageous things, small things, but things that cost you some exertion, mental and I suppose spiritual exertion. Now with these words about being strong and courageous that God gives to people, Jesus comes into this particular situation to talk about dealing with sin in the church as well as forgiveness. Now let me bring you to the text. 
Here's a proof text in uh, chapter 18 of Matthew that talks about how you deal with conflict and sin in the church. It begins in a five-step process. If your brother sins, if your brother or your sister sins, now it's very clear here that you need to understand it's not supposed to be nagging about something, but something quite significant and serious that clearly is sinful. A five-step process is given. The first one, one-to-one, go and confront the person who has sinned. Now, I'd like to point out to you, it doesn't say, go to the pastor of the church, or go to the LCEC chairman, or go to the lay leader and whisper into their ears that so-and-so did this that is very sinful. No. It is given by Jesus to the disciples, and this is one of the first times, in fact, the second time in Matthew that he refers to the church by the term ecclesia, the gathering of disciples. So disciples are being told, if you have someone who has sinned against, uh, if, you, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So if you want to keep a track of this, you have your five fingers. Your first one is one-to-one, talk to each other. Personally. Please don't go and start out a poison pen letter or a rumour war or a viral storm to say so-and-so did this. And I think if I can also uh, say this courageously to you, have the courage to tell someone who comes to you and says to you, I got a problem with that person. Before they even say anything, ask them, have you spoken to that person? Because if you haven't yet, go and talk to that person first and deal with it. Rather than tell me gossip that is unverified in order for me to support you. Matthew principle 18, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. One to one talk in the privacy and personal conversation of a face-to-face in-person, which also in the current technology, I would suggest to you, means don't write a WhatsApp message or a messenger or a, you know, uh, some indirect way. It does mean go and face the person, person-to-person or as best possible in a personal manner, one-to-one. Very important first principle. You got a problem with someone else and he's sinning one-to-one. Talk to that person. And for those who are involved in mediation and conflict, you must ask this question. Have you confronted that person individually before you have started to bring in the rebel and the crowd to lynch that person? The second step, if he doesn't listen, if he does not listen, and and the Greek understanding of this listen is to, to listen and to be transformed by it. It's not just a matter of, I told him, he heard it, he gave me an interview and that's it. No. In a way, it is a listening and hearing and a doing, a turnaround of that person. So if he listens, step two, if he refuses to listen, and you're very certain that this is a sin, take two or three witnesses to establish 
every matter. Now, we, we normally like to take two or three witnesses, but we take our gang. We take people who agree exactly what we, you know, it's like you take your family members uh, to go and confront somebody who's opposed to you. No, you need to take two or three witnesses whom others would agree that these are objective, independent witnesses who will speak and establish the matter. In other words, it requires clarity and openness about what has happened. Very important step two. Again, one, uh, sorry, two or three witnesses. It is required in order to establish what is being said. Now, this requires a level of disclosure for both parties that are aggrieved. Why the sin has occurred and who has conducted it. But let me move on to the third one. Now, if he, if he still refuses to listen, now we, we need this, we need to read this. Uh, verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And so one of the things about dealing with a conflict, particularly when it deals with the community, is that eventually the church needs to be informed. Now, when, it, when the church is informed, what unfortunately happens is people decide to either leave or there begins an all-out war of words. Now, what happens when the church is not informed? Or what happens when there is gossip going around? Unfortunately, it breaks the church and the church unity. Because what happens then is things are done in the quiet and for the purpose of, uh, of guarding the reputation of one, uh, things are done in the background. I'm not sure whether our churches are up to it and have the courage to deal with it. I mean, how many times in the history of you being in Penang Trinity where someone comes up and says, I have a charge against so-and-so, and the church has agreed that this person has done this, and therefore we are publicly informing you as a church. Has that ever happened to you? But I'll tell you the number of times when bad things have happened and the church hasn't been told, and the person continues to do damage, not only to the church, but to people outside. Fraud, blackmail, adultery, rape, molestation, all these things. And the, when the news comes back, the question they ask is, why? Why didn't the church tell others? And that's where the tension lies. And that's where courage is needed to confront lovingly, not for the sake of punitive whacking the person, but for the sake of recovering that person. Remember, in the context of what Jesus is saying, sheep gone astray, seek them out, draw them back in. Now, after, being, after informing the church, what then happens? We have this challenge where we are called to have the church speak to the transgressor. In other words, the community of faith begin to speak to this person and exercise their weight in them, saying, this is not right, brother. This is not right, sister. You need to be reconciled. You need to turn back. And if that fails, finally, treat them like an unbeliever. 
Now you must remember this. It is not that we kick them out and we say, we wash our hands, you go to hell. We never say that. And you must also remember that the person who is writing this, Matthew, was formerly a tax collector. So he uses these terms and he knows that even as a tax collector, there is redemption available for those who turn and respond back. There is also, we remember that Jesus hung out with the pagans, with the unbelievers, in order to call them back into the kingdom. So it's not a situation where we say, we kick you out of the church, don't ever come back, and I hope you rot in hell. No, it's not that. It's a case that we say that this person is no longer holding to the values and the beliefs of our church, but nonetheless continues to come to the church because that's where he finds community and healing. And so that tension remains that he is within the community but not a part of the community. But Jesus doesn't end there. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Verse 19, again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now we always love to say this, two or more gathered at any prayer, at any rally, God is with us. But understand this, that this text is given to us as Jesus speaking this in a situation of conflict, confrontation, and dealing with judgment. And his, his words to us is, I will be with you. When do these words mean the most to me? I will be with you. It's when I'm afraid. It's when I'm afraid and I need courage and ask God, Lord, be with me. This is tough. This is difficult. I don't want to lose this person whom I love. And neither do I want to be wrong and falsely accuse someone for anything wrong. That's when courage is needed. And that is the time when God is with us. So when we're dealing with people's sin, hope to God and pray to God that God is with us. And we steep this conflict, steep it, stew it in prayer. Not in a sense of self-righteousness because the Methodist book of discipline says so or because our rules say so, but out of love. Now these are the terms for biblical confrontation. But then Jesus continues on and he gives the principles for biblical forgiveness. Because you read there in verse uh, 21, immediately after he finishes this statement, I'm there, I'm with them, Peter jumps in. Then Peter came to Jesus. So it's immediately within that same moment, in that same context. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me. Now, I, I wanted to highlight this. And, you know, if you're filling in the blanks from the outline, it's a, it's a personal thing. So Peter's already applying this and says, okay, um, irrespective of whether I'm the leader of the church or whether I'm someone else within the, the, the you know, community, I'm called to hold people accountable to the life. 
But what if someone personally sins against me? How many times must I forgive? What is the process involved when it is a personal thing between me and the other person? And Jesus gives this, uh, sorry, Peter uh, suggests this um, seven times. Okay. At the end of verse 21, he says, up to seven times, question mark. Now, Peter is going almost double what is expected within the rabbinic tradition. It was during that time that people says, how many times must I forgive a personal offense against me? And the rabbis who argued about this says, three, perfect trinity. That's good enough. And so when Peter comes and says, seven times? That's even a better number, a perfect number, seven. And Jesus' answer is, I tell you, not seven, but 70-7 times. Now, uh, emphasis is on that dash. Because there are several ways to read 77 times. You can read it like we did just now, 77 times. Or 77 times. And that's where people sometimes interpret this as either... Uh, 77 or 490 times. Now, is that a specific number? If you're, if you're just like the Pharisee or the legalist and says, okay, 77 times, let me take out my handphone and start my counter. <laughs> How often do I have to forgive this person? And you might be doing the math. And if you do the math, if you do it 77 versus 490 times, and if you stay awake for 16 hours in a day, you either forgive a person every 12 minutes and 30 seconds or every two minutes in a day. So the point is not how many times. The point is just keep forgiving. Now, Peter doesn't ask the question for all sins or only certain sins. So I won't go there. That's going to be the topic for another sermon maybe. But in a way, he gives this formula 77 times. Now where does this number come from? Where does this number 70 times 7 come? This number actually comes when you look at Genesis uh, in the situation where Lamech the very vengeful person says, if someone has done this to Cain, I will do it unto them. Uh, uh, the formula of revenge. If you want to look at this, Genesis chapter 4, verse 24. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 70-7 times. And so Jesus has just juxtaposed two different things. Revenge, 70 times 7 times. Forgiveness, 70 times 7 times. You need a lot of courage to be able to forgive a person who continuously comes back to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. You need a lot of courage and fortitude and to be really strong to say that this is the way of Christ Jesus, the way of forgiveness and love as opposed to revenge, vengeance and righteous retribution. Which one do you want to choose? And so I've termed it, it is better to be courageous and to forgive 
than it is to be vengeful like Lamech. Let me try and bring this to a close. The parable is one that I think many are very familiar with, but maybe some things we tend to lose out and forget. So I'm just going to quickly read it and explain some things that we sometimes don't pick up. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, in the NIV translation, it's 10,000 bags of gold. In the original text in Greek or in other translations, it is 10,000 talents. How much is one talent worth? The general calculation for a talent is one talent is the equivalent of 20 years' salary of a day laborer. One talent is 20 years' salary of a day laborer. If you do the math, it's huge. To give you a sense of scale, the total uh, tax paid by the region of uh, Palestine, Idumea, Judea, Samaria to the Roman authorities was roughly 800 talents a year. So to have this servant owing 10,000 talents is a ginormously, phenomenally huge, unpayable debt. He can't do it. But look how he responds. He responds by saying, uh, as the king, verse 24, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him, and since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all they had, be sold to repay the debt. So this is a slave, and the king has the right to do as he wishes with him. He has this enormous debt that he cannot pay, and verse 26 is what the servant has to say. At this, a servant fell on his knees before him, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Very important for us to understand this. He took pity on him, or as other words or translations would have it, had compassion on him. This is a characteristic that we find consistently tied into Jesus. He had no way of paying. He was very unrealistic about his ability to pay, thinking that he can work his way out of debt to the king. And he makes all these false, in a way, hopeless attestations. But the king, in his compassion, lets him off. And when that servant went out, he found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Roughly, uh, it's not small, but it's roughly about three to six months of pay. So it wasn't trivial, but it was almost one six hundred thousandth a portion of the 10,000 talents that was owed. But to him, that 100 silver coins was everything. He grabbed him, began to choke him, pay back what you owe me, he replied. And his fellow servants fell to his knees, begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. He uses the same exact words that this other servant had used for the king. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. In other words, making it impossible 
Because whilst he, is, whilst he is in jail and he doesn't have the money, he can't work in order to pay that debt. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. So the other servants heard about it, complained to the king, and the king heard about it. He says, you wicked servant. I'd like you, if you want to, in your own way, highlight that, you wicked servant. You depraved man. I cancel all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. It's not just imprisonment now, it is torture. To be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. In other words, never because he owed 10,000 talents. Even if he were to sell everything that he had, he could not recover it. And Jesus ends with that end stress. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, I highlighted in my notes there that the parable's end stress is important. A parable always has a last verse or a last phrase that basically says this is the meaning and the meaning therefore is that this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart what's the message that we can take from this well several rt france a a, a commentator and a, and a professor of uh, of uh, new testament says a community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. And not only that, the master was willing to forgive a debt it could never have paid, but will not forgive his refusal of an act of generosity that is within his power. Let me say that again. The master, the king, is willing to forgive this huge debt that was out of his ability to pay. But he would not forgive the servant for refusing an act of generosity that was within his will and power to do. Now, if you have the will and power to forgive and you withhold it and you refuse to offer this forgiveness, it's on you. I think that needs courage. To forgive someone who has inadvertently hurt you again and again and again, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But here's the thing. You have been given the will and the power to forgive. It's in your hands. What you release will be released. What you refuse to release will not be released. But the great warning that Jesus gives about this is that this is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you give your brother, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. In other words, it may start off as I, I intentionally design and decide to forgive you, but I don't feel like it. Many a times in conflict situations, I have spoken to friends and uh, unfortunately in their bitterness and in their revenge, they say, I know God has asked me to forgive, but I cannot. 
If that sounds familiar, then this is for you. I know God wants me to forgive, but I cannot. I will not. It is beyond me. And this is something we need to wrestle with. I am shaking here, <laughs> trying to find the courage to tell you what I need to tell you. So that when you confront God and are asked, did you forgive? You would have at least had warning for me to say, you need to do this. And difficult as it is sometimes in the ministry of people with dignity at the end of life, one of the questions we need to ask them is, have you been reconciled with all that you are being reminded of? Because it is good to keep a clean slate before you leave. And some say yes, some say no. And I say, if you haven't, and you have time, and God has blessed you with this time, it is best you get this done. And so there they are, they're on the phone, they're trying to call up people, and they're trying to meet up people, and they do that. For these people, they have the chance. But for some of us, that may not be possible. And so it is best, even as the Lord reminds you of these things that you need to forgive others of, that you find the courage to pick up the phone, to call a person, to make an appointment, and to forgive 70 times 7 times. Now, this act of forgiveness is not just for the other person. This act of forgiveness is for yourself. You don't want to prove yourself unworthy of the king's mercy because that is what happened for this man. Let me end with this third point. There is this way of courage a way of courage to confront lovingly, gently, and the way of forgiveness. And this failure to confront and forgive sin results in two things. Sin abounds because we fail to confront it and be salt and light where we are called to be. But not only when we fail to confront and fail to forgive is that love is withheld. We fail to give love. We fail to release love. We fail to also receive love. Because at the boundary of conflict, you're not willing to go into the other person's side. Sandwiched between these two narratives and parables is what Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. In conflict as a result of confrontation, in forgiveness as a result of sin committed, Jesus said to them, when you are gathered together in my name to deal with sin and to forgive, I am there with you. Now, if you say in your life, I want God with me, that's a very surefire way to have God with you. But let me draw it back to the first verse that I gave you in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I am there with them. 
I leave these thoughts with you, brothers and sisters, in order that you would deal with sin within your family, within your community, as a brother and sister to another, and as a brother and sister to forgive again and again and again with love and compassion. Let me end with what we had uh, in the being, knowing, and doing. Sorry, I lost my place in this. I want you to know that the Lord has called you to be courageous. I want you to know that the Lord has called you to be courageous in confronting as well as in forgiving sins. To know that. That it requires courage and each and every moment that you take a step of courage, you are doing what God has called you to advance the kingdom of God. He's called us to be people of courage that walk up in faith to do what is right with others. And so in the midst of all your challenges, in all your difficulties with COVID-19 or what God has called you to, will you do the step of courage versus the step of vengeance? Courage versus vengeance. And thirdly, will you do this act of loving kindness, forgiveness, and gentle confrontation? My challenge to you in these two weeks, will you find one occasion to either confront or invite feedback. To confront or invite feedback for what is needed for you to do. Now, there are three steps on the reflection. Uh, but before that, let me close in prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come to you humbly asking, Lord, for forgiveness of sins. For it is the knowing that we ourselves have been, been forgiven this insurmountable debt that we realize what it means to us, Lord, to forgive others. Teach us to ever rely on your forgiveness rather than our greatness. Grant us the courage, Lord, to confront gently those who have sinned against us or who are consistently living a life of sin and to seek them out and to draw them in and grant us Lord the courage to forgive when it is often so difficult and so hard this we ask and we pray O Lord in Jesus mighty name three questions for reflection as normal I'm just going to quickly put it up there for you have you ever confronted someone with their sin or yourself being confronted if no one has actually told you it might be the case that you're not open to being confronted you're very aggressive and you refuse to have someone speak into your life but if it's anything about the kingdom will you allow situations of trust where you allow a person to speak into their lives and says this is what i see about the sin that lies within you and have the humility to accept it 
as you speak about this in your small groups, maybe explain your situation and uh, how you're struggling with it. Next one. Do you find it hard to forgive or ask for forgiveness? And wrestle with this term uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 44 to 47. What do you understand of the term, he who has been forgiven much, loves much? Is it a case that we deem ourselves impervious to sin and that we are self-righteous, that we really have no ability to forgive others? And thirdly, what courageous steps can you take in the next two weeks to either confront or be confronted to forgive or to ask for forgiveness? Again, the kingdom of heaven is established when we are strong and courageous in order to deal with the darkness of our own sins. May you go forward to be courageous people of salt and light where you are. Friends, let's prepare our hearts now as we come to communion with the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation of life.